This week's Game of Thrones feedback show is sponsored by CanvasPeople.com. Alex Kidwell, you know that it's the summertime. Of course, uh, you are out having all sorts of adventures uh, this summer that you want to commemorate, I bet. Yeah, yeah. You just got back from New York. Did you take a lot of pictures? Uh, I'm not great at taking pictures, but when I do, it's nice to know that uh, I can do things with them besides just have them sit in my phone. Well, canvaspeople.com, they've got a great offer right now where normally an 11 by 14 photo canvas is $69.99. They've got a special $0 pricing offer for our listeners. But you can try out canvaspeople.com for free. Just pay the shipping. It's going to be less than $20 overall. You know, down in the Winterfell crypts, they try to commemorate Ned Stark with some horrible statue that even Arya and Sansa says nobody can do faces right at canvaspeople.com. Get the faces of everybody you know and love. They're going to take the photos right from your phone and get them into a beautiful piece of art that you can hang up on your wall. These great looking canvases. Nicole and I have done it. We love the one that we have. You're going to love it to over a million satisfied customers already on canvaspeople.com. So to get the special offer, go to canvaspeople.com, upload your photo, select 11 by 14, and enter promo code POST in the promo code box to get that special $0 pricing. That's at canvaspeople.com, promo code POST. Game of Thrones, Season 7, Episode 4, The Spoils of War is over, but we're just getting started answering your feedback questions here on the Game of Thrones Feedback Show. And now here's a guy who was expecting to see slightly more Noah Syndergaard this summer than just on Game of Thrones, Rob Sistrinino, and here's Alex Kidwell filling in for Josh Wiggler. Alex, how are you? I'm doing good, Rob. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh... I like to consider myself a maester in in my knowledge of this world. I definitely don't have as many links on my chain as Wiggler does. No, but, few uh, do. Few do. Yes. So uh, Josh is on assignment that he is actually uh, traveling through Europe. Uh, big apologies going out to everybody uh, expecting our deep dive podcast this week. Uh, we were just not able to work it out technically to get a connection to Josh. So I do apologize about that. We'll have everything back on schedule for episode number five. Stephen Fishback will be back in the mix on Sunday night. Antonio Mazzaro did a great job filling in for him. And then we'll have our deep dive with Josh and then the regular feedback show coming up. But we are very lucky to have Alex here with us today to go through everything. And we should have a lot to talk about with no deep dive uh, this week. So it was a deep dive for Jamie and Braun uh, (laughs) into the water at the end of the episode. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a real deep dive. That was a real deep dive, and we'll talk about all of that. Make sure you don't miss an episode of our Game of Thrones podcast when you subscribe. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash GOT iTunes. And, and uh, really, we are sort of left off with this cliffhanger at the end of the episode about whether or not Jamie and Braun ended up uh, making it out. And I feel like that w- I talked about this on Sunday night about how I thought that was kind of a cheapo cliffhanger for Jamie Lannister. Obviously, no way the show kills off Jamie Lannister 
in that way. How did you feel about that ultimate moment at the end of the episode? I didn't love it. I thought uh, you and Antonio did a pretty good job when you were talking about how, you know, this was a really great episode. And for it to end on that kind of a note, I think a lot of people were a little frustrated with that. Um, it, it doesn't really feel like something in the Game of Thrones mold. Like this maybe kind of feels like something, one of these moments where mm-hmm. we're starting to see show deviate from books and we almost feel like we see it before it's happening. And for all we know, we're wrong, but right. it, it felt that way, didn't it? But that being said, did you feel like that overall this was the high point of season seven so far? I did. I really enjoyed it. I thought there was a lot, and obviously we'll get into it once we get into some of these uh, feedback questions, but there's a lot going on here just in terms of excitement, in terms of new moments and kind of things that are happening on the screen that in many cases we've been waiting for for quite some time. There was some things finally transpiring in this episode. I think that, you know, some people have been waiting for since episode 10 of season one. I mean, since we first saw dragons on Danny's shoulder blade, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) book readers longer than that. Yeah, right. I mean, so yeah, I think when the first book came out in like 1995, bless those people. All right. Well, let's start this feedback show off with picking it up with Braun and Jamie. We've talked about Jamie, but Jojen Kraus wants to ask us about Braun. He writes in to ask us, did Braun survive the battle of the loot trains? Seemed like a pretty badass send-off for the guy. I'm not sure where the character goes from here. We talked about Jamie. No way Jamie is gone is a goner, but do you feel like, is there a chance that we come up episode five and Braun doesn't make it? I would be surprised. I think, you know, if you're just kind of watching the episode casually, it looks like the last you see of Braun, he's just kind of like exploded off to the side. But if you really kind of look closely, it does seem like it's someone in leather who's jumping off that horse to save Jamie into the water. One thing that we do know about Bronn's character, if we go back all the way to season one, Bronn very, very famously wears leather and doesn't wear full plated armor. I mean, we saw this in Tyrion's trial by combat in the Vale mm-hmm. when he fights uh, a knight of the Vale who I think is has one of the best names in Game of Thrones, Sir Vardis Egan, a very ridiculous name. Uh, and he, you know, he just beats this guy because this guy is, you know, covered from head to toe and Braun has full mobility. So, you know, it could be interesting to see if Braun is the one who, you know, dove off into the water. Maybe he can swim in his leather. Maybe he's the key to Jamie's salvation. Ultimately, I mean, there's still a dragon when you resurface, but I think Braun is going to be okay. And I think the fact that he's uh, a sellsword, that he doesn't, you know, do it up in these, uh, you know, uh, metal dresses, as the Dothraki calls them, I think that's going to be a, uh, a real benefit to him at this point. Okay, Brian wants to ask some questions about Braun's move here. Are we really supposed to believe that Braun would risk near certain death at the mouth of a dragon or best case scenario, drowning to save Jamie? I'm sure drowning is the best case scenario. I think that, you know, best case scenario is, you know, jump in the water and then get out of the water. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Braun prides himself on being a sellsword and refused to serve as Tyrion's champion against the mountain for fear of death. Seemingly, Braun was closer to Tyrion at the time than he is with Jamie. Did HBO jump the shark with this cheesy closing sequence? Should we be worried about without the book material, we're going to get more of these cliche television scenes? All right. Well, this is sort of a two part question in terms of Braun making the move to save Jamie. I didn't think twice about it, especially when you consider 
how much Braun has invested in the personal well-being of Jamie Lannister. We saw Braun complaining at the beginning of the episode about not getting enough gold and that Jamie made all these promises to him. If Jamie Lannister ends up getting roasted by Drogon, there is a lot of personal wealth that also goes up in smoke for Braun. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I think, you know, what Brian's touching on is interesting. Uh, it's something that, you know, you might not remember that Braun is very much. You know, he's a nice guy. He's a friend of these Lannisters, but he's always been self-interested at, at his core. I mean, when we first meet him, it's because he volunteers to be uh, one of the people to help take Tyrion to justice for Catelyn Stark. He's just a right guy in right place at the right time kind of thing, and he sees an opportunity. So I, I do agree that I think Bronn is someone who, when push comes to shove, he might bail. Uh, you know, maybe if he looks up on that hill and sees, like, Tyrion standing there alive and well, then he realizes he has another outlet for finding wealth and means. But in lieu of that, I, I agree with you. I think you make a really good point that that is what drives Braun. And Jamie is, you know, the the opening through which all this gold and, you know, uh, status is going to pour. I mean, without Jamie, you know, we've heard Braun say it himself in this episode. He doesn't believe a world with, you know, Cersei in control is necessarily going to be a stable one where he can, mm-hmm. you know, live in some castle and grow fat with a wife and die the way he wants. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think Jamie is pretty integral to his plans moving forward. And that's a great point that we could see Braun f- switch sides again uh, when he ends up seeing what's going on with uh, Tyrion and Danny. If Tyrion will have Braun back after that, but I think that he would. I think that Tyrion is a very practical guy in terms of HBO jumping the shark. Look, we're both on the same page that as Alan Sepinwall called this, this was schmuck bait in terms of it. If anybody thinks that Jamie Lannister is going to uh, not come out alive. In- in episode five of season seven. But in terms of HBO jumping the shark, I think there's a much bigger concern with HBO. I don't know how much you've followed this over the last couple of days. Have you been following anything about the HBO hacking that went down? I have. I have. I must I must admit, Rob, we were in New York last week and I was uh, you know laid over in a terminal for a while. And lo and behold, somebody in a Facebook group, I mean, goes ahead and posts a, a pirated link to Whoa. this past episode. I was, it was a real... Uh, it's a real struggle. It's a real battle. I, my my own internal like grayscale battle of just clicking this thing or not, just because it's sitting there and I've got nothing to do. So it was sort of widely reported last week that the episode itself for the spoils of war was ended up in the hands of hackers and ended up being posted online. But it seems as though that there has also been a lot of other internal documents that have been also uh, taken by the hackers and being held for ransom, Uh, much like uh, I guess the Iron Bank is uh, wanting their Bitcoin from the power. Hours that be at HBO, and I'm not sure how many sort of emails and stuff like that, if this is going to be on the level of the Sony hacking, where potentially there's like embarrassing information that could ultimately get out, but... In addition to that, I also believe that there are episode descriptions, which maybe also, and I think that there is a very real concern, and I don't know how much there's uh, been talk about this, that the entire rest of the show could, you know, we're all like, oh, don't say anything, don't spoil me, don't spoil anything, but it's possible that now the, like, blow-by-blow of this final season and a half could be in the hands of these hackers and might be sort of like disseminated on a widespread scale. And I, I am legitimately concerned about this. 
Yeah, the night is dark and full of terrors, for real. Pay these, pay these hackers. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very concerning. I read Give something. Give them what they want. <laughs> Don't ruin this show for me, HBO. You're getting my seventeen ninety five a month for the last <laughs> God knows how many years. Just pay these men their Bitcoin. I'm very concerned that I saw an article that HBO is reaching out to Congress to try to help them with this. No, <laughs> that's very concerning. Yeah, that's they're the last people that could help you. <laughs> Congress is going to just send like an assassin with the Valyrian steel dagger to try to find these people. Oh yeah, and I'm sure that they're they're the people you call when you need to get something done. Congress. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm very concerned about this. Yeah, uh, this is legitimately concerning. Where's Tycho? HBO, get that guy on the horn. <laughs> Go down to High Garden. Yeah, yeah. I've I've mostly like just kind of been an ostrich with this stuff, where I'm just trying to avoid it as much as possible. But it's definitely out there. I mean, it's very clear to me, and people are looking for it. So, I mean, it, you're going to see it circulate if it releases. I'm not, you know, the fact that episode four made it out there on Friday mm-hmm. of last week. I, you know, I would be uh, be very mindful of these things. It's very forward. concerning, and that could be the thing that does make this and the up uh, jumping the dragon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would I'm, really... I'm very concerned about that. That would really... Especially, yeah, I mean, if, if just people around you are just posting left and right about, you know, things they know like, oh, to I've be coming. Oh, I've got a theory. Uh, this is how I predict the next season and a half ends up going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very, it's very concerning. As a man who, you know, man's a feedback show, I imagine that's especially alarming for you. Andy Lee has a question that I've seen a lot of places, and he ends up saying, a minute after charging through the shallow water on his horse, Jamie is tackled into the suddenly 100-foot deep water, <laughs> steepest lake drop-off ever. I, I get the point. I've, I've heard the point uh, articulated quite a bit on yeah. social media lately. Uh, it is a pretty steep drop. We do know, uh, actually, what body of water that is, so we can we can kind of uh, place some of these things. I like this because last week I did have some issue with the fact that, you know, Euron's in King's Landing. All of a sudden he's in Casterly mm-hmm. Rock. Like, there is no canal through Westeros. That's a long that's a long trek. So the fact that Randall Tarly – like, we're clearly in the reach at the start of this episode with the Tarleys and with Jamie. He's mm-hmm. talking about using brawn to gather the food from the reluctant farmers of the reach. But there, right before the battle, Randall Tarley says all the uh, caravans with gold have made it into the city. We have to get all of this food across the Blackwater Rush by nightfall. And that's telling because the Blackwater Rush is a river that runs right into Blackwater Bay. That's right by King's Landing. That's no longer the reach. That's what they call the Crownlands. And that's the river where, you know, Stannis' fleet was basically meeting – at the siege of, you know, King's Landing, it was right at the mouth of that river. So that is a legit river. I mean, it's it's definitely deep. I mean, in the book, Stannis' fleet is sailing up it. There's lots of, you know, battles going on, people falling in and drowning in their armor, um, you know, battles taking place on ships that have been, you know, exploded and fused together by the wildfire that's taking place. And it's just a chaos on that river. So that is a major thoroughfare uh it's reasonable to think it would be deep uh you know i get i get that you can maybe have some issue with the the quickness of the slope there but Mm -hmm. i mean i I at least appreciated them shouting it out letting us know this is the blackwater rush this is a major river and also we're right here by the capital so danny getting her dothraki there Tyrion being there it's not that 
far-fetched. I'm a notorious nitpicker, but this is not one that really bothers me. You figure that Braun, he is diving, that they have some momentum. Maybe they're going into a body of water with some current. They're also, so they're moving out. They're getting sucked into the current. And we didn't see like a real-time tracking shot. We see Jamie like going further under the water. That could be like 20, 30 seconds later after the impact into the water. I'm not getting too hung up on this, even though I know a lot of people are talking about this, not just Andy. Yes, uh, it is something I've seen, you know, voiced a few different ways by a few different people, even just, you know, in the feedback we got this week. Let's not use this as an indictment of the show that, yes, Jamie ended up in deep water. Okay, so what? (laughs) So what? I think there's more. If if you want to really dig and, you know, scratch at the uh, the nits, I think there's there's more there's more uh, sizable ones to pick out here. So from Andy, let's go to Randy, who asks us, with Jamie surviving due to the plot armor, you don't think that Jamie is in trouble because that the plot armor is going to make him <laughs> sink to the bottom of the river, right? That's concerning. I mean, it's definitely heavy. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be seems to be working for him heavy so far. plot armor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen. It'll be interesting to see. He's going to resurface and... I imagine that dragon's still going to be there when he does. So he's going to have a decision to make, I imagine. Okay, well, Randy wants to know, with Jamie surviving due to the plot armor, I have to assume that he'll be taken prisoner by the Dothraki and Tyrion. How do you think that Tyrion is going to treat Jamie? Does Olena Tyrell's confession affect how Jamie sees Tyrion? Can you see Jamie fighting for Daenerys? So Antonio and I started talking about this uh, on Sunday night about what happens when Jamie comes to. Does he become a sympathizer to what Daenerys is doing? What is that relationship like with Tyrion now that he knows that it wasn't Tyrion who ended up killing Joffrey back at the Purple Wedding? How do you think that that's going to play out? It's interesting. It's it's very complicated. There's a lot of layers here because I think Jamie never thought thought Tyrion killed Joffrey. I think that's important to note. I mean, Jaime helped, you know, Tyrion escape. Like, he he was uh, involved with when Varys comes and gets him. So, I think Jaime always believed that Tyrion was innocent in that. What I think really incensed Jaime more is that he helped Tyrion escape, and then Tyrion uses this newfound freedom to go kill their father. And that seems to me like something that stuck with Jamie more. It was after that escape, after he flees to, to Essos, that Jamie is at that point saying to Cersei, if I do see him again, I'll kill him. Because I feel like what bothered Jamie the most was that, you know, I understand you didn't kill Joffrey, but, you know, by killing Tywin, not only did you, you know, you know, maybe kill your enemy and, you know, our father, but you really left me in a very unfair, very unenviable position where I now have to step up and take care of all these things that I'm unprepared to handle. Uh, Jamie's life has gotten considerably harder ever since Tyrion did that. So I think, you know, that's something that he probably does hold against Tyrion. The other element here is that, you know, clearly Tyrion does still care for Jamie. We saw him, you know, calling Jamie an idiot. I mean, he's really hoping that this is a battle that will be a victory without the loss of life of his brother but he also doesn't seem to have a ton of leverage in terms of telling Daenerys how to handle things right now I mean he's his plans have failed and this wasn't even his plan this seems like it was Daenerys's plan so this is going to be the kind of situation where if Tyrion is saying like you have to spare my brother Danny's going to be like why do I have to do anything you say? I mean, is she she's really not in a position where she maybe feels like she has to listen to him right now. So he's going to have to tread carefully. 
I do feel like she's going to probably issue Jamie some similar kind of ultimatum to John, albeit more harsh, where like you bend the knee right now or, you know, maybe my dragon eats you or something. I, I could see that. Going back to the first episode of the season, or I think it was the second episode of the season, where Daenerys was really questioning Varys's loyalty and says, look, if I find out that you're disloyal to me, I'm going to feed you to my dragons. And I think that Tyrion is in a very interesting spot to have his loyalty questioned by Daenerys because Tyrion, as you pointed out, once upon a time was jailed and then was freed by his brother. Does Tyrion owe Jamie one in terms of if Danny is holding Jamie Lannister prisoner, would Tyrion have the audacity to free Jamie Lannister and repay the debt? Lannister always with the debt. You never have to worry about it. They're good. <laughs> would Tyrion do that for Jamie? And uh, what would Danny's reaction be to that? Because I think that this is a, another interesting uh, theory that I've heard that did Tyrion come up with these quote unquote clever plans to spare Tyrion and sort of, you know, uh, then uh, I guess by proxy Cersei, the dragon fire death that would uh, most certainly have befallen them had Daenerys gone directly to King's Landing with the dragons to take the castle. You know, uh, he's definitely, like you talked about, he's in an interesting position. It is reminiscent of Varys a little bit. I do think that he wants to protect Jaime. Uh, you know, and, and I also think it's, you know, particularly interesting. This is a battle where, you know, and they even talk about it in the uh, kind of after the episode stuff that this is the first time and we've seen, you know, quite a few battles on Game of Thrones. But this is the first time that a battle happened where you really had main characters on both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is new territory where there, there were a lot of people all over the world watching this thing, unsure of how they wanted it to go because there's people everyone likes now kind of on both sides of these fights. And I think that's something that's very unique about this show and very interesting is that you don't necessarily know who you want to see succeed because you know it has to come at the expense of someone else that maybe you care about. So uh, I think we're going to see more of that moving forward. And I think that's exciting. As far as like Tyrion's motives, I think – his first priority is to see Danny win and to see himself, you know, take over Castle. I think he wants to be Warden of the West. I think he wants to be Lord of Casterly Rock. I think he sees himself, you know, filling his father's shoes that his father never thought he could fill. I think that's what's really driving him. That's what's given him the motivation to put down his wine. That was, you know, the thing that drove him for much of the episodes of, uh, you know, season five and season six. But I, you know, I think he does want to find a way to spare Jamie. I think he would love a scenario where maybe Jamie is like allowed back into the King's Guard or something mm -hmm. like that, just allowed to be, you know, maintain a happy existence. As far as Cersei goes, I feel like maybe that doesn't extend. I mean, Cersei and Tyrion's history is so long, so complicated, checkered. I mean, he's heard the story, even you know, all the way in Marine, he was hearing about how Cersei was offering a lordship for anyone bringing her the head of Tyrion, mm -hmm. and how people were just. Killing, you know, dwarves left and right to try like, hey, was it this one? Oh, no. OK, like that's not cool. So, I mean, I, I don't know how far his mercy in a perfect world would extend to Cersei. 
Uh, you know, I mean, we even we've heard her talk about how she used to like torture him in his crib and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a that's as old as a rivalry could be. So I'm not sure what to expect there. He has more mercy than her, clearly. But if he if if he were to ever, you know, if they were to win and Cersei were to be at their disposal, I, I really am not sure what Tyrion would advocate at that point. Yeah, I think that's going to be really intriguing to watch these next couple episodes, because how loyal is Tyrion to Danny's cause? Because, I mean, he he didn't even know she existed until the point where he, they're in a box and he's saying to Varys, hey, where are we going? He's like, oh, there's a dragon queen. Oh, OK, that's great. D- is he that invested in what she's doing that he would be okay with the death of his brother, who's been the only blood relative that was ever kind to him? Just, you know, it depends. And is Jamie ready to play ball with them? Is Jamie ready to say, okay, let, let me go talk some sense into Cersei? Or is he saying, you know, under no circumstances, do I want to be involved with this? Even if you're offering some sort of a surrender for us, you know, I'll go down with the ship like Cersei would, or he just might know that she never will. That's going to be really intriguing. Mary Alice, second of her name, wants to talk about the dragons. She says, on the recap show, we were wondering where we end up this season. Don't you think it's curious that there are three dragons and only one person who can ride them? I think Danny goes to King's Landing with one of the dragons and her armies take on Cersei. Meanwhile, Jon Snow, who will now know of his Targaryen roots, will learn how to ride a dragon and take one north, reunite with the armies and do battle with the White Walkers at or beyond the wall. And the third dragon will probably be Drogon, who may be too wounded to do any major battling, but could stay behind a Dragonstone to heal and live to fight another day. So can the dragons operate unmanned or unwomaned uh, in the case of Daenerys? I think they can in the sense that, I mean, you know, in the Battle of Slaver's Bay, we saw that uh, Rhaegal and Viserion, the green and the white dragons, the kind of the uh, the beta and the uh, gamma, if you will, of the uh, – mm-hmm. and unless you want to consider Daenerys the alpha. I don't know. Maybe that's – but uh, they definitely seem to follow Drogon's lead there. I mean if Daenerys rides Drogon into something – it does seem like Rhaegal and Viserion are inclined to kind of follow the leader to a degree. I have always thought that, you know, obviously I think it's kind of a foregone conclusion for most, you know, watchers, certainly most listeners, people who are like in tune with some of the, you know, the finer points of this stuff that John is going to probably end up riding a second dragon. I mean, we know that his lineage should have some meaning, and that seems like the most significant meaning it could Isn't hold. Isn't that a waste, though, to have Jon Snow on a dragon? I mean, we've spent all this time building up Jon Snow as this uh, you know, all-time great warrior who could be the only person who can go into hand-to-hand combat versus the Night's King or any of these other White Walkers. I mean, you get him up on a dragon. I, I mean, Dan on a dragon makes sense she's not going to be getting into a sword fight with anybody but i mean i guess you could see Jon snow jump off of the dragon but i mean almost anybody i mean you could have sansa you know driving one of the dragons yep yep maybe bran could war against one i know that's a popular theory that's out there yeah i mean that makes sense to me bran on a dragon yeah that actually was because you know what's what's he gonna do (laughs) not on a dragon uh i think that that is is a good theory i like that yeah that's pretty good um and then you know the other thing is you know john's pretty formidable when he's not only you know wielding valyrian steel but 
He's got a giant dire wolf that usually attacks people right next to him. Mm. Unfortunately, I feel like that, you know, ghost's budget has pretty much gone to dragons this yeah. season. But yeah, no, I, 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 that's a, that's a really cool visual to see John and ghost like attacking on the ground and Danny attacking from the sky. That would be cool. I just, I always go back to this thing. You know, one of these dragons is named Rhaegal after Rhaegar Targaryen, John's father. I mean, I feel like that's gotta be John's mount. Like, mm-hmm. how is that not the dragon meant for John? I always have felt like that green dragon is is going John's way at some point. So the part about Drogon going to the DL, much like Noah Syndergaard, <laughs> do you feel like that he's going to be now on the shelf and that how that we're going to only worry about two dragons now the rest of the season? I'd be surprised. I think Drogon is Daenerys' dragon. you a know, fast healer. Yeah. And, I, you know, he seemed to recover Quickly enough, I mean, he melted that scorpion. He wasn't so devastated by pain that he couldn't, you know, land and continue to do some damage with his tail and stuff like that. So he may need to be, you know, he may be grounded for a little while. But I mean, it, traditionally with Targaryens, uh, you know, a mount, you know, a dragon mount and a rider are are kind of bound in a way. Like that is a a relationship, a, a respect that has to be earned first. I mean, for people that didn't give birth to the things usually uh, in Westerosi history and from the books, at least. And so usually once somebody has a dragon that they've managed to tame enough to ride, like they don't go for a second. So I would be surprised to see Daenerys end up mounting one of the other dragons. I think Drogon, the fact that it's named after her husband, uh, the, you know, the, the man who is going to give her the world. I think that's all very symbolic. Uh, I still really have no idea about the third dragon. I think, you know, there are a lot of, you know, theories out there that make a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, this idea that Bran could warg into one and then maybe, you know, know to dodge one of these scorpion uh, bolts or something like that. Maybe that could be interesting. Well, do you feel like there's a named uh, connection with each of them? So if Danny is riding Drogon and you think that Jon Snow uh, is going to potentially be matched up with Rhaegal, Viserion, is there any connection with uh, Viserys? That's the yeah, that's the very, very difficult thing to place, I think. I mean, I don't see it off the top of my head. We don't really have another Targaryen. Viserys was a clown who died childless. Um, so yeah, I, it, that to me is still very, very much something that I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around. I think the other two make so much sense, but yeah, I mean, I, I almost feel like something's going to have to have, Bran's going to have to give us something here. Mm-hmm. A crown of gold. Uh, could Jamie Lannister ride the third dragon? Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. There's some connection there. We, we need <laughs> some reach. Kind of, that's a reach. It's the reach. Yeah. But I, I do really like the idea of Jamie ending up being on team Daenerys. I feel like that that's that's really exciting to have uh Tyrion and Jamie somehow I just I, I feel like that he's just gonna I, I can't see him defecting from what Cersei does I almost feel like that Cersei would have to really just go shades of the to the, to the point where he has like he loses uh faith in her where then I could see him rejoining them. But just at this point, I don't see it happening. Yeah, I, I think Jamie is interesting because I like your point about Bran. Like, Jamie's a guy who lost his sword hand. I mean, Jamie's a guy who would actually be more effective potentially if he was one of those people who was able to ride one of these dragons. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I see it kind of like steps, right? Like, you know, between Daenerys and Cersei, there's like a whole staircase. And then, you know, Tyrion's like a quarter way up the steps. And then Jamie's like three quarters of the way up the steps. I mean, they're not definitively on one side or the other. They're just at varying levels. And yeah, Jamie has a level of humanity that Cersei will never understand. Mm-hmm. 
but he's still clearly hopelessly in love with her. I, I almost feel like it'll take her maybe committing to Euron in a way that's, you know, that drives Jamie away because Euron seems like the, I mean, he really is three's company here, just inserting right. himself in the right. uh, equation. I'd also have to see her potentially like that she's dead at that point where then Jamie could uh, switch sides. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's pretty easy at that point to see him go with Tyrion. I okay. think that he's always been torn right between the in the struggle between Tyrion and Cersei, and now I mean that Cersei's lost I, her I think children. That's probably a bit of an overstatement to say torn. He's been like you know caught in the middle, ninety nine percent for Cersei and one percent for Tyrion. Caught but, on the side, right? <laughs> right. Fair, enough. Fair enough. Okay, Andrew wants to plant his flag that Cersei's scorpions will be repurposed for use in the North. And the bolts will be tipped with dragon glass, and one of those undead giants is going to get it. Do you see the scorpions being brought into the battle of the living and the dead, uh, and then taking out one of the giant White Walkers? Uh, I think it'd be pretty cool, but I, I kind of doubt it. I feel like that's a serious amount of transport. I mean, we we did move from yeah. the Reach to you know the King's Landing pretty quickly, but the King's Road is much longer than uh, and bumpy. Yeah, it's bumpy. Uh, the King's Road is much longer than I think they call like the Rose Road, whatever it is that takes you down to the reach. So uh, I, I kind of doubt it. I feel like, you know, certainly there's going to be some interesting trick. You know, the White, White Walkers aren't taking their sweet time up beyond the wall, I feel like, to just come, you know, half-assed. Like they're going to bring some zombie giants. I've long questioned, is Zombie Summer going to show up? I mean, they really they took out Bran's wolf. And they were, you know, right there when it happened. I, I feel like that would be one of these moments that really like, oh, no, not the wolf, you know. So I think uh, they could show up with a lot of, uh, you know, zombie uh, soldiers on mm. their ends. I just would be surprised if it ends up being a scorpion that we use here. We've got dragons, after all. Jack May wants to ask us about Danny's strategy. He says that in the episode, Danny said she's done with Tyrion's clever plans. Clearly, that worked out for her in this episode. Is that going to benefit her in the long run? So, what is the next move if she's out on clever plans? Does she now march on King's Landing? It's concerning. I think this is a really good question because I think that, yes, short term, this worked out great. And I think she may draw the wrong lessons from it. I think she's going to think that this is the way she needs to be, the way she needs to, you know, roll moving forward, like more authoritarian, really take charge. And the concern is what John talked about, that you're just more of the same, that you're not going to win over the people if you're just burning, you know, things and people and, you know, turning the world that they know to ash. So it's it's difficult. I mean, she has to win. If she doesn't win, there's no point in any of this. But if she wins the wrong way, then, you know, she's just kind of in charge of either people that revolt against her or nobody. I mean, she's going to have to burn them all. So she she's in a tight spot. I mean, she really is losing the PR battle against Cersei. It really is shocking. Uh, that Cersei, who's pulled, you know, all the stunts she's pulled, who's killed the High Septon that the people seem to love, has blown up the Sept of Baelor, I mean, that the people have rallied around her. But, I mean, she paints a very powerful picture, you know, one that's been used, I think, throughout history to really, mm-hmm. you know, sell 
the idea of like, they're going to come these foreign invaders. They're going to come. They're going to take your castle. They're going to take your farms. They're going to take your jobs, whatever it is. And they're, uh, they're, you know, not going to play by our code of rules. They're just going to move in and, you know, they have no honor. They have no respect for any of the things you care about. It's easy to see how people would just get scared with that flow of information and, you know, rally around the things they know. But ultimately, Tyrion's plan in the first version did not work. It was not effective. He got outmaneuvered by Cersei, but that she did leave herself open where, yes, that she got Tyrion to play right into her hand, but then she left herself exposed where Danny was able to come in with the dragons and then decimate the Lannister forces. Does Tyrion get a bit of a pass on the first version of the plan because it ultimately resulted in this success? I don't think so. I think he's going to have to earn it back at this point. I think he's kind of in the doghouse a little, the dragon house with Daenerys. Uh, it's really tough. He's going to have to earn it. And I think, you know, whether that comes in the form of, you know, him having leverage with negotiation in the form of like being someone who can actually talk to Jamie and then Jamie can in turn be like a, a messenger that they send into the capital as like some kind of glorified hostage. I don't know how it might work, but Tyrion, I think he has to do more, at least in the eyes of Daenerys, because. I think this is an example of Daenerys not listening to him and it working out. So, you know, his plans haven't worked. The plan he didn't like does work. I think he's uh, really treading a a very thin line at this point. Okay, Uh, let's talk a little bit about Cersei. And Kara wants to ask about Cersei's conversation with Tycho about the Golden Company where she says, assuming Cersei is planning to hire mercenaries from the Iron Bank. I don't think you hire them from the Iron Bank, yeah. but yeah, you get the money. Use their it. money, yeah. sure. Is this a way for Dario and the Second Sons to enter back into the story? Curious to hear that what you think that could add to the story. If anything, this is the season of reunions after all. Okay, so you know a lot more about this than I do. Now, the Second Sons and the Golden Company, those are two totally different things, right? Yes. Uh, traditionally, at least in the books, the Second Sons, just like the Golden Company, are available for hire out in Essos. The big difference in the books is that the Second Sons are kind of made up of sons of Essos, just people who are from small, who came from nothing, small towns, small villages, the, you know, the alleys of Volantis or whatever. Those are the people that make up the Second Sons. Traditionally, the Golden Company is made up of former Westerosi soldiers who in, who are in exile. These are guys who used to belong to great houses that, you know, were tarnished by the Targaryens or, you know, maybe their ancestor did something wrong and they were eaten by a dragon. The Golden Company in the books is very interesting because it is made up of really talented soldiers, all of whom feel like they have a claim to lands in Westeros and deserve some piece of whatever may come out of the conflict over there. So these guys may be introduced as not only people that are going to get involved in the fight and be very capable, but also people that feel entitled to some to reap some benefit after it's all said and done. Um, I think it could be interesting to see. I would be surprised if the second sons are like all coming over as well. But could Dario maybe leave Marine in the hands of one of his lieutenants and sneak over and join up with the Golden Company? So to find his way to uh, to Daenerys that way. I could see that potentially happening. I could see a scenario where we are introduced to the Golden Company and one of them is kind of Dario in disguise. I think that's that's 
as on a the mole, and then I mean they're being hired to fight against Danny. Yeah, well, I, either as a mole or as just you know he saw his ticket over here, and then he was going to play it by ear. He's a play it by ear kind of guy. I think he would just. Uh, Find his passage over here, and then maybe he's supposed to be running Marine right now. I mean, to go undercover (laughs) with the Golden Company. Well, if he has new information that's important enough, maybe he feels like Daniel forgive it, and then he's there. And then, hey, how's it going? What What are you doing right now? Okay, this is a question from Matt Eichel, who wants to talk about this week's big cameo of Mets pitcher Noah Syndergaard as a Lannister soldier. Did you know that this was happening? I had no idea. Yeah, no, I had to find out after the fact. I think I knew I. had heard about it, but I didn't know it was going to be this episode. And then there were a bunch of pictures of uh, Mets ace pitcher Noah Syndergaard, who has uh, had a rough season because uh, that he ended up getting hurt and has been basically on the sidelines uh, this whole season. He wants to, Matt is asking, can we chalk up the Lannister loss to Lord Terry Collins deciding to start Noah Syndergaard on the mound in that battle? Uh, I don't know if you can blame this one on Terry. What I would say is that, you know, Drogon appears to be injured that no matter what he says, he needs to go get the MRI. He Don't let Drogon tell you he's fine. He can go out there and play through this. It's nothing. If he's having pain, get him in the MRI and don't let him go out there and try to fight through it because it's not going to go well. Yeah, yeah. Learn from the mistakes of uh, of Noah and... The- <laughs> Don't let Ray Ramirez check him out either. <laughs> he fits in well because he's a very big guy. And uh, you want big guys as yeah. the second line of spearmen so they can hold their spears well, above the shorter guys. Uh, again, if you don't know Noah Syndergaard, so he is uh, this, they call him Thor because he's this really big guy with long blonde hair. I mean, he is, he could be a Lannister. Yeah. Forget a Lannister soldier. He would be like the, the best Lannister they have. Yeah, it'd be like some kind of like Lannister Clegane hybrid. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, so he was he he was perfect casting on that, and uh, very fun to uh, see him out there. Yeah, and then also you know if the the scorpion is gone and you don't have access to another one, that guy can't throw pretty hard. Yeah, he can <laughs> he can throw a spear perhaps, and probably with better aim than Braun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe with enough force to puncture a dragon. Who knows? I want to get into talking about everything going on with the Starks. But before we get to that, let me just take a moment and thank a sponsor, Plated, plated Plated.com. Anybody who knows me knows I take my meals, my meal planning very seriously, Alex. I'm going to have lunch right after this. Alex is going to see how seriously I'm (laughs) going to take lunch. And Plated is great because they do meal kits for people who love food. Each week, they've got 15 chef design recipes to choose from. Later on tonight, we're we're actually doing Plated. We've got the stuff tonight. We're going to be doing uh, Italian cheeseburgers uh, with uh, mozzarella and a mozzarella corn and tomato salad. Very excited about that. Sounds lovely. Plated does all the grocery shopping for you. They send you the exact amounts of each ingredient that they're sourcing quality ingredients, artisanal mayo that comes in its own jar, not the mayo jar uh, with Nick Majorano. It's uh, the best way to spend time with your family. If you want to be like, uh, just so you know, you have all these Starks coming back to Winterfell, they should all do plated to together and prepare a meal that's the best way to make up for all this lost time yeah some nice hot savory pie or something (laughs) sure sure speaking of pie plated even offers dessert options like no churn coffee ice cream 
and cinnamon rolls. So go ahead and check it out. Discover your ideal dinner experience. Go to plated.com slash post to get 50% off your first plated box. That's 50% off for a limited time only. Terms apply. See plated.com slash post for details. That's at plated.com slash post. Okay, let's talk some Starks, and let's start with the one Stark that's actually not in Winterfell right now, and that would be John. And we've got a voicemail from the prolific Steve Davis, who wants to compare John with someone from his past. Hey guys, Steve Davis calling in. I find it very interesting that John finds himself in the exact same situation as Mance Raider. And Danny is literally saying the exact same thing to John that John said to Mance in that isn't their survival more important than your pride? So having said that, what do you think John should do since he was on the other side of that conversation once before? That's a great observation by Steve. And Mance Raider was basically saying, like, no, my people will never respect me if I do this. So, you know, why should I, you know, uh, bend the knee to you, Stannis? Yeah. Of all people. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty one for one. Uh, the biggest difference, I think, is that, you know, John has one card to play that I'll get into a little bit that's, uh, that Mance never did. But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, at the, at the core, it's it's accurate. I mean, Mance, John found a way to facilitate that for Mance. And if that's the case, then you would think that John would recognize that there is a path here to maintain the respect of the, nor- of the North and also get them to realize that this is the path forward. However, I think John has a play that Mance never did that doesn't involve bending the knee, which is marrying his aunt. Uh, Targaryens traditionally... Whoa. You know, married brother to sister, married, you know, within the family. I but mean, he doesn't know he has that card to play. Not yet. Not yet. But I think that's... Or gonna... I should say, he. I guess he know, <laughs> could know he has that card to play, but he doesn't know that that's his aunt. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, we saw uh, Davos saying to him, I, you know, I noticed you looking at her good heart and stuff like that, you know, making the joke about, you know, John and Daenerys. Everybody's thirsty at Dragonstone. There's a little bit of sexual tension Something going on Something in there. the dragon glass. <laughs> yeah, many things are happening from Asande and Grey Worm. Yeah, it's... It's definitely it's going on over there. Mm-hmm. But I think that yes. that is Stannis and Melisandre got freaky uh, a few times. And, uh, you know, don't forget Gendry. <laughs> yeah. How could we forget Gendry? Dragonstone's a happening place. <laughs> it's very true. Yeah, it's pretty dank and depressing. But somehow uh, it seems to get people going. Um, I think that ultimately has to be the way out because we, that we're at an impasse right now. John seems unwilling to find a way to bend the knee. Danny seems unwilling to find a way to help John without that. And we know that these people are it. both Targaryens. So John is like, all right, I finally decided to bend the knee. And then he breaks out a ring and ah. says, will you be my Khaleesi? <laughs> yeah, he has like the dragons like, uh, you know, light up a message in the sky. Yes. And then, you know, they can say like, uh, hey, John, I-, I heard you bent the knee to Danny. He's like, no, no, I was proposing. That yeah. was a pro- I would propose to her. Yeah. Well, then you get to maintain your title of king. I mean, everyone in the north has mm-hmm. no issues there. Uh, really, I think that's that's the path is getting Daenerys's respect and uh, approval to the point where you can marry her because I think that is 
that's where we're headed. How can that not be where we're headed? John's a Targaryen at the end of the day. And right. we, we know this about Targaryens, that to keep the blood pure. To keep and she was willing to marry that guy in Marine, So it's not like she has like these high standards. No, exactly. Right. And now that there is another Targaryen out there, I mean, it seems like it only makes sense. Like if you want the blood of the dragon to exist into further generations, that this seems like the path. All right, let's take a question about Bran. This is from Andrew, who wants to know about the dagger and how much Bran knows. When Littlefinger says, give Bran the dagger, and Bran asked him, do you know who this belonged to? Do you think that Bran already has the answer of who the dagger belonged to, but was asking if Littlefinger knew? Or do you think that Bran was legitimately curious? I think Bran was trying to see what he would say i feel like bran knows everything and you know then the next question invariably should be what didn't bran know what Littlefinger's answer was going to be and yeah that's when you get into like some tricky stuff in terms of omnipotence and just you know shows and you know stories in general where somebody is all-knowing but i have to think that bran knows the origin of the dagger i mean yeah. i i don't think he has any doubts about the root of all this stuff. What I do think is interesting is that we still don't necessarily know exactly how that all played out. I mean, we do know that that dagger was Littlefinger's. I, you know, I did go back just to, you know, know exactly what he said in episode three of season one, Lord Snow. He tells Catelyn Stark that he lost the dagger in a wager to Tyrion where he bet on Jamie and Jamie lost to Sir Loras. That seems strange to me. Uh, and, you know, in the books, they Which get into it a little it? bit. The idea that Tyrion would bet against Jamie and bet on Sir Loras. Uh, from what we know about the relationship between Jamie and Tyrion, not only are they very close, but Tyrion probably does pretty well by betting on Jamie. I think he spent most of his life making profits and, you know, using them at brothels based on betting on Jamie and having success doing it. So the idea that Tyrion would lose a bet by betting against his brother has always rung strange to me. In the books, they go into it in a way that I think the show is going to deviate from because Tyrion comes to believe that maybe it was Joffrey behind all this. And that seems like a direction the show won't go. So, I, you know, I think it's very much still up in the air who is responsible for this dagger i mean did the bet even happen uh as far as the show goes yeah i mean was there actually a bet between Tyrion and littlefinger for a valerian steel dagger right we only have littlefinger's word to confirm that and based on that word catelyn then you know makes a citizen's arrest of mm -hmm. Tyrion, and that starts everything in my mind it was always that i assumed that there never really was a dagger changing hands that it was always littlefinger's dagger and that he gave it to you know the assassin and said, oh, actually, I know about this dagger, that this was Tyrion Lannister's dagger. I know that's because I lost the bet to him. That's possible. The, to me, the part that's concerning there is like, would Littlefinger send a murderer after Catelyn's son? I mean, he really loved Catelyn Stark. Is it, you know, and, and what's the gain for him there? I mean, just to placate Cersei? I mean, the well, only reason Bran needed to, to die. But no, uh, in my mind, it was that, I mean, why, then why kill the John Aaron? It was the whole, like, setting off the War of the Five Kings, chaos is a ladder, and he was going to be uniquely positioned to be able to benefit from all of these warring factions. I suppose that's possible. I, it, to me, it seems a little, f like, 
too forward thing. Like he doesn't have brands green sight. You know what I mean? Like killing John Aaron, that that's the hand of the king. That leaves a power vacuum. Mm-hmm. Someone has to fill it. That leaves a vacancy. You become master of coin. Like I, I see, he I see the logic there. about Catelyn's kids with Ned. I mean, if anything, like he would like to have his own kids with Cat Stark, but I, I don't think at any point he cared about any of her kids until he saw one that looked exactly like a young Catelyn. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I think, you know, it's very fair. I think Littlefinger is absolutely a suspect. I think he's on the table. I think, you know, Cersei is still very much on the table, though, because I think she benefited the most from Bran's death in that moment. I think Cersei... Well, how'd she get her hands on a dagger that Tyrion had won? You know, maybe she stole it from his room. I mean, they were, you know, while they're in Winterfell, I mean, she could easily take it from a chest to... St- I mean, the target. Uh, sorry, the Lannisters have, you know, gold and things everywhere. That seems like the kind of artifact that might even just be laying around you know robert's treasure trove or something back then Mm -hmm. so i just i think it's still a shoe that has to drop on some level i think you know common sense you you may be right i mean it may very well be little finger that you totally have the motive right for cersei that she doesn't want bran to wake up and then reveal that he saw her with jamie but to go to the point of this specific dagger that i'll steal from my brother and it doesn't really serve cersei at all to have Tyrion Lannister framed for this murder, she could just hire an assassin to kill him with with any weapon. You know, go steal a knife out of the kitchen. I don't care what you do. Just make sure this kid never wakes up. So, I, I mean, and, and and that part of the story is almost dependent on Littlefinger telling the truth about that he actually made a wager with Tyrion, which you're saying is already a suspect story of based on that who had who in the bet. So... To me, the only thing that makes sense is that Littlefinger was trying to accelerate this whole war by framing the Lannisters for a murder that they actually didn't commit, even though technically Jamie Lannister pushed the kid out the window, uh, that if he could have just revealed that information, that would have served its purpose just as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this dagger, it's its really interesting. It's, it's going to be a talking point again going forward. I mean, we saw that Sam is going through old scrolls in Old Town, and on one of those pages is an exact drawing of this very dagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this dagger is resurfacing in a major way as a as a MacGuffin, if you will, a plot device yeah. here in season seven. I think the thing that really for me is most confusing, no matter who it is, is with Littlefinger, with Cersei, with all these characters that we're talking about, they're all pretty cunning and pretty intelligent. And you'd think, you know, this dagger is one of a kind. I mean, it's in Sam's book. So the idea that any of them would be dumb enough to have uh, an assassin use a weapon that would be so easily traced back is the the biggest piece that's still well, very for, confusing. For Littlefinger, I mean, that was the point where he could then identify it and say, okay, well, Sell this is Tyrion's. And, and that this is a, obviously a Lannister plot, which we've uncovered. This, is, uh, this was so stupid of them because I know whose dagger this is. Now, one of the things that we were talking about on Sunday night is why what was Littlefinger up to why was he giving this dagger to Bran I actually had read an interesting answer to that I believe it was on uh, a Reddit thread where somebody was saying but the reason why Littlefinger is giving the dagger to Bran is that he's trying to play Bran the same way he would play Sweet Robin of like oh look oh look what I have for you another present uh, little boy so you know here's more reasons to like your old uncle Pattire and except that Bran is like like, what is wrong with you? That's really uh, great. Uh, yeah, the sweet Robin comparison. I, yeah, that's perfect. Right. He's I uh, brought you a bird. Yeah. yeah he's he's like, he's oh goody. He's been placating kids for a long time, and he's had no problems. And now here he's, he's dealing with Bran, and this guy knows everything. And then Arya, and this she could kill you in your sleep. And he's like, 
Man, it's like a children of the corn moment for him, right? <laughs> He's just looking around at these kids and swallowing pretty hard. Brendan of House Fitzy has another dagger question. He wants to ask about the dagger in relation to Arya. He says, it feels like Arya has to use that dagger to kill Littlefinger for sure. She knows what his game is. She's seen him in action when she was at Harrenhal going back to season two. Littlefinger is meeting with Tywin when Arya is his cupbearer at Harrenhal hall so is that where this comes back into play and again for Littlefinger to die at the hands of that dagger would be that poetic justice if he was in fact the perpetrator that sent the assassin to go if if he just lost the dagger in a bet to Tyrion and it really had nothing to do with him no reason that Littlefinger should die from that dagger right but to have Arya be the person to do it in my mind the only thing that makes sense is to have Sansa be the person to kill uh, Littlefinger so maybe that dagger is the weapon but it doesn't make sense to me why Arya would be the person to you know kill Littlefinger yeah well I've seen like kind of you know since Arya got this dagger it seems like everyone's in agreement that she's gonna use it right you don't give Arya this Valyrian steel dagger at Winterfell for her not to use it in some major way the three kind of targets that I've seen thrown around I think are all plausible for varying reasons I think Littlefinger is very plausible but you know like you talked about I think it you know fans have for a long time said I think Sansa being the downfall of Littlefinger is much more fitting um, you know, one one possibility is that this is, you know, if it wasn't Littlefinger, if it turns out it was Cersei and, and Arya has the dagger, she's got uh, Cersei is the first name on her list. If she were to take this dagger to King's Landing and somehow make use of it, I think that could be fitting. And then also, I mean, this is a Valyrian steel dagger. I, I could see a scenario where Arya is the one to... If not kill the Night's King, like kill a White Walker that is very, very menacing or, you know, in some way really threatening the family or something very important in that moment. Um, I don't see a scenario where really I feel like almost two of those things are going to I feel like she's going to end up killing a, a White Walker with it at some point And, you know, whoever is responsible for this, whether it's Littlefinger, whether it's Cersei, I think now that the dagger's in the hands of Arya, I think she's going to end up killing whoever was behind that plot. I'm just still not sure who it was. Okay. Jack May has a question about Arya and her fighting skills. I've seen a lot of people talking about this as well. Arya and Brienne's fight was so awesome to watch, but how did Arya get so good at fighting? She had to turn off the lights to beat the Waif, but now she could take down arguably the best fighter in Westeros? Were the Waif and the other faceless men that good at swordplay, or did Arya suddenly get a huge unexplained skill upgrade. What was your read on that? The Waif and uh, everyone out there, they're just that good. Uh, if we go back to season two and the way he was just able to move seamlessly around Harrenhal, Jock and Hagar, uh, aka no one, and just, you know, kill whatever name a girl gave him, I think it's pretty evident that no one in Westeros has the kind of skills that these guys have. They talk about, you know, more obviously in the books, but people sending away for faceless men to carry out assassinations that they are unable to do because of the level mm -hmm. of intricacy or skill or protection in involved with the people that is are their target. I mean, the faceless men are other are you know renowned are otherworldly in their skills and of murder and you know and then just beyond that in terms of you know the sword ability uh, you know she's learning from Sirio Pharrell early on a uh, Sirio and you know Jock and both from Bravos they have that kind of water dancing style so Arya has been learning for a long time I think we did kind of fast track through the amount of time she spent in Bravos but I mean she was a little girl when she left Winterfell she's a lot bigger now she's definitely some time has passed and she's been learning from the most skilled assassins on the planet uh I think it's very safe to say that she probably is better than Brienne at this point 
Let me float a theory by you and you tell me if there's any credence in this. And it's not really something that I think gets explored in the TV show outside of Bran. But in the books, you know, there's a lot of talking about, how, you know, the Starks are able to, you know, uh, warg into their dire wolves. Do you think that Arya Stark and Jon Snow as well are such are so gifted at being uh, swords people because they have I don't know if you want to say some you know some different variation of the force a midichlorian count <laughs> yeah are they in the same way that Bran is able to you know see, you know see the future it, do they have that a little bit and especially in Arya is she tapped into the many faced god as well where is the reason why she's so good that she's not just well trained but she also is operating a little bit on a different plane than the people she's going to be facing yeah i think that's a really interesting conversation i think it's something that the show and the books will probably never answer either. especially considering how she was able to beat the waif in the dark uh you know being blind and and was she able to tap into something yeah because you would expect right the waif has more training the waif has more skill you th- it seemed like the odds were against Arya, and she's you know persevered anyway I think there may be something to that. I don't think we'll ever have a definitive answer, but I like this idea that as dragons are born in the world, White Walkers are emerging, magic is reawakening. There are key players involved in this story that go beyond just people being in the right place at the right time. A lot of things are happening that seem like they couldn't be happening unless there was some sense of predestiny or the Lord of Light governing over whatever it is, there does seem to be some greater force at play. And I think that could also easily, you know, be applied to the people involved and how they are just, you know, born for the time, if you will. Because that would help sell me on why Ari <laughs> is able to beat Brienne. Okay. Well, if it works for you, I think I, I would say use it. I don't I don't know that we're going to get confirmation no, on that. No, I don't that, think but... we will either. But for me, I could say, okay, well, I could sort of buy it. Now, why Sansa or Rob Stark don't really have that? And I think that uh, maybe in the, in the books is a little bit more of like the connection with Rob and his wolf. You know, why Sansa doesn't have anything, that I can't tell you. Well, it's interesting. You know, in the books, they talk about, and, it, you know, really, I think one thing that, you get from the books is because all these chapters are told from different characters' points of view, you do kind of get a read for, okay, what is this person really thinking? As opposed to if you hear them say something, you sometimes might guess that their motives on the show. Catelyn and others talk about how Rob and Sansa really have a Tully look. They look like they're children of Catelyn. They look like they're from the Riverlands. The others look like Starks. And that was the biggest thing that irritated Catelyn about Jon's presence there, is Jon looked more like Ned's son than than Rob, than the son she gave to Ned. So this idea that Rob and Sansa don't look like Starks, mm-hmm. and then lost their wolves, and don't seem to have these abilities, I think there's really something to there. I think you're onto it. Okay, yeah, finally. <laughs> Alright, uh, this is Amanda from House Fallon wants it about Mira Reed. She says, this was a minor moment, but maybe important, is how Mira Reed left Bran. What do you make of this? Is she gone for good? Was this a character rap on Mira Reed? <sighs> I'm inclined to think probably. Like maybe we're just consolidating our cast at this point and really kind of just focusing on the people that 
you know, have have made an impact up to this point. I mean, Mira has had some presence on the screen, but really, I mean, she hasn't made much of an impact on the show. They haven't given her much to do other than just kind of lug Bran across the frozen tundra. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're done with Mira, but I also wouldn't be surprised to see her like step in and save Bran at an opportune moment because as powerful as Bran is, I mean, he's still, as he puts it, a cripple and you know weapons are wasted on him he he probably isn't too capable of protecting himself so i i could see a scenario she's been such a you know a guardian for him i could see her reemerging at a key moment but i wouldn't necessarily expect it mar wants to ask am i crazy for being excited to see mira going back home is there a chance we're going to meet Howlin reed who is the father of mira reed and jojen reed he was also the person fighting with ned stark back at the tower of joy scene do you think we see Howlin' Reed. I don't. I think that uh, scene was, you know, they, they didn't lay out the kind of details that would make you think that Howland is coming. I think the biggest thing that have book readers excited or anticipating the arrival of Howland Reed is that he's the only person still alive that was there that day. However, in the show, Bran has now seen everything that took, took place that day. So Howland's uh, relevance and what he can bring to the table is very much, you know, nullified by Bran already having known it. Okay, I got one last question for you. I got a voicemail from Matthew Forsyth. He wants to put this latest battle scene from Game of Thrones into perspective with some of the other ones that we've seen. Hey, what's up, Robin Josh? Matthew Forsyth here. And obviously, last night we had another amazing battle to add to the pantheon of amazing battles in Game of Thrones history. I think that brings us up to five now with Battle of the Blackwater, Battle at the Wall, Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, and then last night's episode, whatever it's being called. And I just want to get your all's quick power rankings on those big five battles that we've had in Game of Thrones. Thanks. Blackwater, the Battle of the Wall, Hard Home, the Battle of the Bastards, and uh, the Dragon Battle from this past week. Yeah, I believe people are calling it like the Loot Train Battle. The Loot Train Battle. Okay. Do you have any strong takes in terms of, do you have a five on this list? Uh, Like a a clear last. Yes. I think it's Blackwater. Oh, really? I was going to say, I think it's the Battle of the Wall. Uh, Yeah, I could see. Those are four and five for me in some fashion. To me, I I feel like that Blackwater, I mean, if we're just talking the battle itself, I I feel like that the overall episode of Blackwater just elevates it Mm -hmm. in terms of how great of an hour of television that is where the Battle of the Wall, it was good, but I feel like that the overall episode, not as memorable to me as Blackwater. I just feel like that there was so much drama in that overall episode, it's just the standalone episode, everything going on at King's Landing with Cersei and Sansa and the Hound and Tyrion and Joffrey. Uh, that that's just you know one of the all time great episodes. I feel like that that just elevates it a little bit for me. Yeah, I, I can see. I mean, it's hard for me to. I could easily switch those four and five. Um, I feel like a big factor of it may just be that those are battles I've read. And the three that I kind of put at the top are battles that haven't come out in the books yet. So maybe it's just excitement and anticipation on my end for actually having gotten to these moments. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think Blackwater to me, just the book describes it as just such chaos and excitement. And like, you know, the, the wildfire has like burned these ships to a point where they fuse together and make like a bridge and people are fighting on the bridge of ships and just, you know, burning and falling. And just, I mean, so I think, you know, that my expectations were too high, given what their budget was back in season two, given all of this stuff. So I think that's a big factor for me with Blackwater. But I, I agree with you. The Battle of the Wall, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think really just, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot going on, but the biggest thing that's going on in that moment is kind of just the John and uh, Egret. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, all of that just kind of as a microcosm of the bigger fight that's happening there. So no, I, I, I can I can sign off on Blackwater going above the Okay, wall. so that's five. Blackwater is four. Now this is the big three. Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, and the Loot Train Battle. Do you have a strong take on what the uh, top is? And you have to rank those three? I'm so bad at ranking things. I really I really don't. It's like it's like asking me to pick between my favorite dragon or something. Like I just <laughs> I don't know what to give you. I still feel like that Hard Home is one. It's really good. Really great. And yeah. it's just so different, too, because you're, you know, you're fighting the White Walkers. I mean, these are the enemies that we established. The first scene of the first episode, I mean, finally it comes to fruition. Mm. You realize that this thing that was like, are these ever going to be a threat? Like, oh, that's a real threat. Okay. These zombies are sprinting. They're just being resurrected willy-nilly. Right. So I think I got this. I think that so Hard Home is one. Loot Train, I'd say, is two. Battle of the Bastards is three. Just, you know, no dragons, no White Walkers. True. That's just a, you know, a, a great battle scene. They do a great job of depicting the grittiness and the realness, sure. and I love all that. But I, I I get what you're saying. I think the Loot Train battle is so cool because... And you got a little bit of that grittiness and realness from the bronze uh, POV as he was sort of like yep. going through it and running through flames and everything. When they're making them form into lines and doing the whole knock draw loose. Right. Yeah, right. Right. But... If we're going to go through the flow chart of uh, are there are there White Walkers uh, and people coming back to life? Yes or no? Okay, no. All right. And then we say, are there dragons? <laughs> yes or no? That's why Battle of the Bastards is three. No White Walkers, no dragons. You're third. That's fair. Yeah, I, I, I like that you have a system in place <laughs> that we can use for going forward because these, right. are, these are very difficult to do, ranking these battles. And if we ever got to the point where we had a battle scene... With White Walkers and Dragons. Game over. <laughs> New number one. Yeah. With a bullet. There it is. Okay? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the loot train scene really is great. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, to minimize that at all. It's I mean, number two on the overall battles list. Yeah. We've been, but yeah, I mean, just, you know, stating for the record, we've been waiting to see dragons engaged in, you know, land warfare like this for... As long as there's been dragons. So it was it was definitely an exciting moment. I think it lived up to the hype. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we knew that was coming that night where I feel like that, uh, you know, a lot of the teasers for this episode, you know, you saw the dragon, you saw the flames. I know that Jamie like charging for the dragon was in the teaser. I just feel like that night of Hard Home was just a, a, as big of a blindside as you get on this show. Yeah, and also, I mean, when John just shatters that White Walker with uh, with the long claw, I mean, that really is a game changing moment. And the reaction of like, uh, wait, what? Yeah, you and can then, do that. The Night King just raising his arms. Right. And, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of just really great moments from that okay. for sure. All right, great stuff. Do you have a hashtag for today? I was thinking maybe something along the lines of like whose dagger. Do you want people to say Littlefinger's dagger, Tyrion's dagger? Do you want to put a name on the dagger in the hashtag? See, this is why you're. Uh, this is why this is, this is your world. You're better at this than okay. I am, Rob. That's perfect. That's great. All right. Uh, tell us who did it. Tell us who did it. Put on your clue detective <laughs> magnifying glass and let us know whose dagger it is. I guess uh, Brand knows. Brand knows. He has the answers. All right. 
Alex, a great job. Very fun to go through with this. I'm trying to think if uh, we had we ever done the Game of Thrones uh, podcast before, maybe last season. I think you did one with Josh, right? Yeah, I, I sat in. I know I did a book club at one point with Josh, but yeah, uh, yeah I think that's the first time we've really sat down and talked. Very to fun. You're super knowledgeable about everything, so uh, I, I stand very impressed. <laughs> Thanks. I am obsessed, so that does work for me. Okay, well, job well done. Uh, we'll keep you on the speed dial for this stuff. Okay, you can follow Alex Kidwell on Twitter. He is at. Alex Kidwell. I will be back with Stephen Fishback on Sunday night. So looking forward to uh, reuniting with the Blackfish. And we will talk with him about everything in episode number five. Uh, Eastwatch is the name of it. So I would imagine that we are going to be catching up with uh, everything going on uh, in the Night's King, who's been very quiet here in season seven, even though he's sort of the avatar for the season like when you use the game of thrones hashtag on twitter his face is popping up when josh and i were there at the preview of season seven we saw the first episode you know big shot of the knight's king so uh he's on the poster for the season he's been way way quiet i mean he's had about what 30 seconds of screen time so far in season seven he's really gathering just a hundred percent of corpses that exist beyond the wall taking his sweet time although to be fair if you're immortal why do you have to worry about time? Why is he? He's not on our clock. He's, yeah. he's doing his own. I think that if you are Tormund Giants Bane, uh, <laughs> I think I'm very concerned for you this week. Yep. Yeah, I'm worried about Tormund too. The only thing I'll say for him in terms of that, uh, my best hope for him living past this week is that he has not consummated his relationship with Brienne. Yeah. If, if for no other reason, I mean, it's become such a, a fan favorite at this point. And we have seen some fan service this season. Uh, no one's really talked about this that I've seen, but I love this little moment during this episode where uh, John says something about having less men and Davos says fewer, which is an exact correction that Stannis made of Davos a couple seasons ago. Mm-hmm. Stannis was always the stickler for grammar and stuff. So I just thought that was super cool. I really enjoyed like that little nod to good old Stannis Baratheon. Well, this show does a lot of that. Yeah. They really do. A, it's a lot of callbacks on Game of Thrones at this point. So uh, we will see on Sunday night. Uh, Could be a problematic night if you're a wildling red shirt. (laughs) Not looking so hot for you uh, this Sunday, but we'll see when we uh, catch back up on Eastwatch. All right. Great job. Looking forward to everything. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. PostShowRecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. We appreciate your feedback and your star ratings. Be sure to follow everything that Josh is doing over at The Hollywood Reporter. He's on Twitter as well. At Round Howard. Take care Everybody have a good one. Bye.